is Living Catholic with Father Don Wolf. Living Catholic is a fresh look at issues confronting each of us today. This show deals with living out the Catholic faith, what that means for Catholics, as well as the impact on the rest of society. You certainly don't have to be Catholic to enjoy this show. And now, your host, Father Don Wolf. Welcome, Oklahoma, to Living Catholic. I'm Father Don Wolf, pastor of Sacred Heart Parish and rector of the Shrine at Blessed Stanley Rother. This is the weekend we celebrate Memorial Day. In the course of time, this weekend has become known as the beginning of summer, as the time in which we adopt the summer schedule as the days lengthen and the weather warms. It's also the time we begin to think about vacation and the leisure time we've looked forward to since the beginning of the year. To this extent, Memorial Day has become a very big part of the civil calendar, not to mention it's become big business for those who focus on what the world is interested in. Memorial Day doesn't rival Thanksgiving or even the 4th of July, but it is a nice way to interrupt the concourse of our calendars and give us a chance to kick back a bit and enjoy ourselves. Of course, it also keeps us from actually focusing on the meaning of Memorial Day. For the most part, we've chosen to stray away from the actual purpose the day was supposed to celebrate as we've opted for the interruptions from work and worry rather than the reason for the day to be interrupted. That's okay. Most of the time, we have a hard time focusing on the real meaning of Christmas, and our celebrations of Labor Day are are almost comical compared to their real intent. But at the same time, it would do us some good to pause for a moment and spend at least a few minutes thinking about what this weekend is supposed to portend. Memorial Day has its origin in the most destructive war in American history, the Civil War. As a result of the nearly 700,000 war dead, the whole country was grieving and needed the chance to signal this national outpouring of grief and sadness. And just so we have some sense of proportion, the country at the time of the Civil War was one-tenth the size it is now. So the casualties would be as if 7 million men had been killed in a war, a catastrophic number that would have touched nearly every family in the country one way or the other, as it indeed did. Several recent books have detailed how this national experience prompted an entire cultural refocus on things like cemetery design or how we go about burying our dead and the purpose and practice of funeral homes. That is to say, this gigantic moment in the history of the U.S. has had long-term effects far outside of any of the political and economic questions we normally ask, which is another way to note how hugely important this experience was in the life of the American people. And those who embodied these losses were desperate to find a way to acknowledge them and to come to terms with them. Beginning just after the war, whole communities opted to recognize a day in which the war dead were remembered and their graves honored and decorated. Eventually, this grew into a national movement, as it needed to, in order that the whole country could pause to remember this part of its history and, with hope in the national purpose renewed, move on from what had been its worst moment. Now, as part of this national awareness, there came to the fore the question of the national reckoning of those war dead who were killed in rebellion as part of the Confederate States. It was a prickly question to consider. The war began because of the succession of these states from the Union. Should those actions that prompted the war be recognized in the national remembrance of the sadness and tragedy of the war, or should they be excluded from national celebrations? But if they were excluded— Could we consider ourselves at the moment one nation, or would we acknowledge that we were, in fact, two nations riven by the struggles of the war? But this prompted an even more profound question. 
those who died for the Confederate cause considered that we should be two nations. So would not honoring them honor their cause? This was a subset of the entire national project of the time, as the country as a whole struggled to come to terms with what had happened during those years of battle and maneuver and suffering. It's hard to imagine such intricate and emotional issues were raised simply by asking which graves ought to be decorated and thereby which battle deaths ought to be honored. But throughout history, the memory and celebration of the dead has virtually defined the outlines of civilization. In fact, the cultural theorist René Girard has taught that human culture began at the grave as the human mind struggled to come to terms with the reality of death and the meaning of life in its face. The questions forming the motivations for Memorial Day outlined the entire history of the country and helped to define its direction from 1865 to at least 1917 when the entire country, including formerly Confederate states, were mobilized to fight in World War I. Memorial Day is a hugely important event in the life of every American up to today. The answer to the principal questions was that the Confederate dead were to be honored along with their Union brothers. And we shouldn't forget that there were brothers in arms against one another, not just a figure of speech. There were many families in which brother did indeed fight brother, and brother-in-law fought brother-in-law on opposite sides of the battlefield, including in the family of the Union General Ulysses Grant, whose wife's brothers wore Confederate gray while he was uniformed in Union blue. At the end of the war, in order to promote the, the reunification of the country around the ideals of a true national union, sentiment won out over resentment, and the war dead of both sides were equally honored. This was no small moment, especially in the Confederate states. The scythe of battle had struck down those in the southern states at a frightening rate. Something like one-fourth of all men of fighting age in the South were killed in the war. It was infinitely safer to be a 21-year-old black man in South Carolina whose regiments suffered the highest casualty rates in the war than it was to be a 21-year-old white man in those years. The Civil War devastated those, state, those states by way of the casualties it enacted. The question of the war dead was no idle one. So the decision to have a national holiday to honor all of those who had died had national repercussions. In very short order, it became understood that all of the soldiers who fell and all of the captains of the armies and all of those who opted for war on all sides were woven into the same national experience. And because they were, the national outpouring of grief and the civil understanding of what had taken place were woven into the fabric of civic life together. Memorial Day helped to make this happen. This wasn't without cost. In short order, Honoring the Confederate dead took on a meaning much greater than simple historical acknowledgement of politics gone wrong. For those who still opted to honor the notion of Southern uniqueness and the validity of the Southern cause, honoring the dead in their midst fed the flames of their passions. From our perspective today, this might look like the last embers of the energies that had burst into flame in the 1850s and 60s, but they've proved to be much more fiery than that. The sense of long-term grievance and the ultimate rightness of the honorable Southern cause, those were still alive in the 1970s when I joined the young men in my class who were in the seminary from several of the Southern states. I was shocked by their presumptions and their language. It wasn't their sole sense of identity, and they didn't speak of it as the foundational part of their lives, but that sense of being Southern and the South being right 
was part of how they defined themselves and how they spoke of their historical foundations. Memorial Day helped to promote the preservation of memories, perhaps in ways no one anticipated or even wished. But no one can say the desire to honor and to acknowledge was without consequences, and not all of those consequences were purely positive. So as we make the best of our Memorial Day, let's set our sights on a couple of worthwhile truths concerning this time, the first of them being the most obvious, which is memory matters. While any of us who spend a moment thinking about such things know this is blindingly true, it might come as a surprise to those who value what's new and spontaneous over anything else. But the truth of the matter is that our lives are defined by memory. Unless we stop to acknowledge this, we're liable to miss the point of our lives, not to mention be unprepared for the possibilities inherent in our Memorial Day celebrations. Memories matter because what we remember and how we remember set the perspectives of our experience. We should be clear here. We're not just considering the images or conversations of past that we can call to mind. Memory is much more than those. It includes the sum of our experience as it impacts our minds and our bodies. Memories in this context, they make us. In fact, a case could be made that one of the greatest of the insights of the 20th century was that the memories we carry as an individual and as a people help to determine who we are and what our futures will be. Memories are powerful. Let me give you an example. When the people of Yugoslavia were emerging from the oppression of the Soviet system during the 1990s, they were facing the future and trying to understand what kind of nations they needed to become in order to prosper. The entire Balkan Peninsula has always been a complex web of religions and languages and peoples intermixed by a variety of historical trends and moving borders. In fact, as much of Europe had settled into the nation states that we're all familiar with now, this part of Europe had never found itself at ease with the concept of national identity. To settle on a national identification that included a national language and a national history would alienate a good part of the people living inside that country who would identify themselves with alternative languages and a different history. It seemed that there were no easy ways to make countries out of the sprinkling of people's identities and languages there. As the leaders were shaking their heads about what to do, several of the more powerful voices in the states there began to call for ethnic identification beyond the boundaries and lines on maps that divided the regions. And they did this by asking their people to recall a battle that had taken place in 1389. In this battle, they had been defeated. And on the 600th anniversary, the public voice of this alternative republic, he asked his people to avenge the loss of this battle. And they responded with violence, war, exile, and executions. It was almost unbelievable. Memory for them meant everything. No one pretended to imagine that people had lived their lives slowly meditating on the military dispositions of their great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers, waiting until they had a chance to make things right. Everybody understood the appeal to memory as a ploy on a part of the leaders to manipulate the people into acting for independence and overthrowing the current government. But the battle did happen all those years ago. It did result in defeat. It did change the map of the region, and it did help to shape the subsequent history of the place. Bringing this to mind motivated the people of the place, even though most of them were learning about what had happened 
as they were experiencing their motivations. Memory was a tool lying around to be used, and when it was convenient and useful, it was picked up and then used effectively. Memories aren't simply paragraphs in history books, uh, and they're not merely the images and fragments of what our grandfathers might have told us. They are frightening powers that can be inserted into the operations of our decision-making, and they can cause powerful things to happen. There are even schools of thought in psychology that maintain memories are retained by the body through physiological changes that store the effects of experiences. In the book, The Body Keeps the Score, the author maintains that the experiences an individual has changes the neural pathways and thinking patterns so much that the body is altered by what has happened to it. Not only are memories engraved on the sum of the bodies and its makeup, healing from traumatic experiences can't happen until these changes are acknowledged and repaired. Now, this attitude gives some guidance in addressing the plague of abuse in society, but it also sheds light on many of the collective behaviors our society has adopted through the years in everything from sports and dance to drama and massage in order to address collective experiences of difficulty and trauma, which is another way to say memory matters. In this account, memory matters in just about everything. So to spend some time focusing on memorializing those who have gone before us in our history is to do what is primordially human. We live through the impact of our memories on our lives. What has happened to us helps to determine who we become and what our lives will be. Memories are not just those things in the past. They also shape the possibilities of the future. Think about one of the great examples of collective memory in the Old Testament. When the people of Israel were freed from slavery after 450 years in Egypt, they left their slavery behind as they crossed the Red Sea and found themselves shed of Pharaoh's army. And yet, they wandered in the desert for two generations, for 40 years, before they entered the Promised Land. And why 40 years? It could be because there would be no one left who had experienced as an adult what it was like to be the property of another person. Only those who had grown to adulthood as free men and women, without the bodily memory of slavery, they were the ones who were able to have a place in the land of God's promise. In the Passover celebration, the whole nation remembers what it was like to be slaves in Egypt and to be set free, but those who carried the memory in their bodies couldn't be free because memory matters. So when we remember, we're determining our futures, not just delving into the past. And this is especially important since Memorial Day has become the time when we celebrate all those people in our past who died in defense of the country in all of its wars. Our attention to memory, prompted by the questions of national identity in the Civil War, has now spilled over into the desire to make sense of the sacrifices of all those who had their lives taken from them in all of our country's wars. We memorialize them in order to make sense of our own history as a country, as well as to make sense of who we are and where we're headed as a people today. Think about it. If we can understand the ideal of our nation as something worth defending up to the price of life and blood, and this price was paid by those who went to war, then it is possible to imagine a national identity worth defending today. And if we acknowledge that this price was paid for a sense of national purpose, Although that purpose may have been obscure and uncertain when the price was paid, 
It could be possible to imagine our country can be defended and its ideals honored now, even though we may disagree concerning what that purpose is. Memory is powerful because it makes the present. And secondly, we need to make sure our memories are accurate. Given that memories are powerful and can move people and nations, it's incumbent upon all of us to make sure the memories we honor and celebrate are accurate to the history and experience they embody. This is one of the energies active in our society at the moment, as an entire countrywide movement has been ginned up to question the accuracy of our national story and the truth of our collective experience. Whatever the answers uh, turn out to be about those projects, the energy unleashed is probably good. If we're aware of how powerful memories are, we have to be sure this power is directed, lest the power causes ultimate destruction rather than is used to reinforce and steady what we have. In Germany in the 1920s, for example, it was common for politicians to recall the people there to a sense of grievance about the loss of, about the loss of the First World War. They directed people to ignore the actual history of their leaders who had abandoned their responsibilities and corrupted their positions for personal gain. And as they did this, these political figures substituted an appeal to other memories, false and unfair, that produced horror and destruction on a wide scale. And we should be reminded, it wasn't just horror and destruction in Germany, but all throughout Europe. Memories have to be accurate and reflective of the lives of those who have them or they, like sharpened edges, can become more dangerous to the ones who carry them than they are to the ones who face them. And thirdly, as Christians, we inherit and we guard our memories. This is no insubstantial part of our lives as believers because memories make us. When we're baptized into the life of faith, we are baptized into the entire story of God at work in the world, which means our memories are larger than our experiences. As we pour water over the forehead of an infant, that child is now the bearer of the presence of God in the world from the time of Adam until today. The call of Abraham, the mission, the mission of Joseph, the gift of Moses, the journey of Jonah, the vision of Zephaniah, the call of Matthew, Jesus on the cross, the empty tomb, all of these are the memories that are now affixed to this child. And while this baby has hardly had an experience beyond his broad sense of hunger, pain, and relief, that child embodies the whole history of revelation and salvation. Throughout this child's years, that child will be formed in the history and will carry uh, with that child and will carry that, that history into every part of life. And this is true even if that child learns no more about it than, than he or she learns about, oh, welding. It'll set the context of life. Our very definition as Catholics is determined by the memories embedded in our lives. We honor this potential as we honor the graves of those who precede us. Cemeteries aren't simply the place where it has been convenient to entomb our ancestors so that we might visit their graves. They're places in which we make the connection between their lives and our lives and the unbroken possibilities of faith and life we share. When we walk among the tombstones there, we should note the information on them not as the bare history of when they lived and died and under what names, but as the shared power of life, of all that we have. They are our memories alive in us, and their years spent in the challenges and the realities of life are invitations to us to spend our years as faithful to their ideals as, as, and as inheritors of their gifts. 
Memorial Day is when we recognize the gift given by those who fell in battle to preserve the ones they loved. But this recognition is extended to all of those who have gone before us, who poured out their lives to make our lives. Memorializing them brings their lives into our living. It affirms the power they have in us and in all we do. Memorial Day recognizes the truth of things in our lives. And finally, we begin to understand as we memorialize that we're not alone. We've been made by those who have gone before us, and they are with us as we face into our days. It's true that we've been made aware over and over in our contemporary understanding that the cracks in the foundations of their lives propagate into our lives, too. What they've done affects us and and limits us in all the ways that we're familiar with. But amid the plague of loneliness affecting our world today, we're also reminded that we do not make our way in the world all by ourselves. Every part of who we are and each element of our lives taking place outside our windows is brought to us as the product of those who have gone before us. We should be grateful to them for what we have. The world in which we live is a net positive because of what we have been entrusted with as the legacy of those who came before us. This is especially true of those ancestors of the faith whose lives and examples shape the world of grace we enjoy. These are not just our own family trees. They are all whose lives and gifts made the church for us. Honoring them is to honor God, whose graces are made real in their lives and can be made real in ours. Memorial Day is when we take a moment to remember we are alive to the relentless work of God who crisscrosses our lives in every place and has done so at every time. So celebrate this holiday and have a good time. Begin summer and enjoy the change of seasons and the expectation of leisure in every way. But take a moment to stop, to give thanks, to remember, and to memorialize. They're all the same thing, as we know. And we, in celebrating them, are woven into the goodness of the world and into the goodness of those who came before us. Back in just a moment. Welcome to our final segment, Faith in Verse. We have a poem today called, What a Nice Guy. Oh, he's such a nice guy, condemning words from girls in class who knew him well. To be nice or any version of such was now absurd in the world of then and the content we could tell. This wasn't today in the school hallways populated by disinterested robots on their cells. It was in my school, lost in distant haze, fuzzied in memories of books and bells. The constant attention to the wilder side seemed to be unvaryingly girls' ambitions, along with the willingness to let slide any defect of character or conditions. No, nice guys finished last years ago, were relegated to the faded second ranks, and could never so ascend from below or strive to fill in the huge glaring blanks. That was then, of course, in those idle days, when the flock of opinions flew and lit to cover over the subject of their harsh ways before they rose again to edge and flit. But take heart in our days now. Everyone survived, mostly, their their time then. 
We're tougher than we think the times will allow. The tough days will pass to calm the storm and wind. That's what a nice guy. that you have the chance to to join us in the weeks to come as we continue to explore what it means to be living Catholic as we go underneath the surface of the kinds of things that we say and experience to find out where uh, we are able to live our faith. Hope you can join us then. Living Catholic is a production of Oklahoma Catholic Radio. To learn more, visit okcr.org.